Greetings, friends and family. It's the weekend of Sunday, August the 21st, and this week we continue with our, our brief series and look at some of the major events in the life of Christ when Christ's ministry here on the earth. And today we look at sort of a strange uh, story in Scripture, one that we don't often talk about, but it is found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. It's the transfiguration. So after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there he appeared before him, Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He, he did not know what to say. They were, they were so frightened. And then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So we began this series last Sunday morning examining some of these highlights of the earthly life of Jesus with a look at the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And today we come to this unusual event, the event of the transfiguration. I don't think any one of us can can read this unusual account with our minds sort of flooded with questions, right? What is this strange glory that shone on the face and on the garments of Jesus on the mountaintop? And why did Moses and Elijah from the Old Testament appear with him on the mountain? And why did this voice come suddenly from heaven in the brightness of a cloud? And, and why was it that Peter, James, and John were chosen to view this event and were with Jesus? There are many other questions, perhaps, that come to our mind as we read this, this account. And these questions, I think, reveal immediately the challenge and the difficulty of Bible study. You know, we don't find the, answer, the answers to them lying right on the surface of these events. You have to dig a little. And, but this is the way that God has designed it deliberately. In Proverbs, it says, it's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but it's the glory of kings to search it out. And one of the tests of whether we have royal blood or not, so to speak, is whether we give ourselves to this ministry of searching out these tremendous truths that are hidden away underneath the surface of the, of the accounts in Scripture. And when we do, we discover that it's an exciting and it's this challenging search. Perhaps there's nothing more challenging and exciting than to approach our, our Bible, and especially these stories, these kinds of stories, with all the interest and the excitement, and just beginning sort of to solve this new mystery. So with that plug for Bible study, we'll, we'll turn now to this one here. So the first question. What is the glory that appeared on the face of Christ on the mountaintop? Well, all three of the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this account, each with minor differences. But all of them agree that Jesus selected three disciples and led them apart onto a high mountain. And Jesus led them up in the evening hours. It was approaching dusk. And Luke tells us that when he went apart with them this way to pray, with, to pray and, and as the disciples were watching him in prayer, his face was suddenly altered. The, the countenance of his face began to shine, and a glory shone up from him that even affected his, his clothing, so that he was just bathed in this beautiful, luminous light that lit up everything around it. Well, critics of Scripture tell us that 
all that happened here was that Jesus was on a peak of a mountain where the disciples could watch him. And while they were watching, the sun maybe broke through a cloud and the sun's rays hit him and lit up his garments as, as though there was a light coming from them. And, and this was all that they saw. But, but this is kind of a naive explanation for these disciples, Peter, James, and John. These were outdoorsmen. They'd, they'd seen the sun break through clouds and light up something, some object. They knew what that was like. They, they would not easily be deceived in that way. But every one of them agreed that this was a different thing, that the light was not coming on Jesus. It was coming from within him. It was shining, shining out of his countenance. And all, and all of them recorded in superlative terms. It was like the brightness of lightning, one of them said. It was like the lightning shining out. And Mark records words that, that nothing could, could whiten the garment like this, and, and that they were in this experience. Nothing could bleach them like this. So it's this unusual manifestation and shining forth of supernatural light. Now, what is this glory? What is happening to Jesus here? There, there are many commentators who suggest that this is an incident where the deity of Jesus is shining through his humanity. And that once in his in earth and that once in his earthly career, that basically divine nature, which was his, as he is the eternal son of God before the foundation of the world, that uncreated glory of deity fully God is now permitted to shine out and the, the disciples see it. And there are some who suggest this is what John means when he says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. But it seems that that idea is perhaps canceled out by, by Paul's first letter in Timothy. And in closing of that passage, he refers to the coming of Jesus again and the glory that will accompany him and the nature and the character of Jesus. And in chapter six of verse 14 of first Timothy, Paul says, I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this will be made manifest at the proper time by the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So that if this is the shining forth or out of the divine nature of Jesus, it would be impossible for human eyes to, to bear, he dwells in unapproachable light, that light of uncreated deity. No human eye or heart can, can bear it. As Isaiah cries, who shall dwell with the everlasting burnings? And this then cannot be that light. But if it isn't that, then what is it? Well, there's several clues here in this scripture that give us the answer. The first one, in the first verse of this chapter, chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus says to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Now, if we've read this account from Matthew, we will note that this solves a difficulty that Matthew's account raises. Because in Matthew, the story of the transfiguration begins with the next verse in Mark. After six days, Jesus took him, Peter, and James, and John. And there's this chapter division between these two verses. And so we miss the connection and so many have wondered what Jesus meant when he said, there are some standing here who will not taste of death before they see the kingdom of God with power. 
And then comes in Matthew's account, this chapter division, and then he goes on with the account of the transfiguration. And many have thought that perhaps Jesus meant that his coming was to be while men were still alive in the day of his flesh, his earthly presence. And this is why many commentators say that Jesus was mistaken about the time of his second return, or he missed the time since no one stood there, uh, there then lived until he returned. But Mark sort of solves this for us because he puts these accounts right together. And he shows us that the transfiguration is a fulfillment of what Jesus said, what he meant when he said, there are some standing here who will not taste of death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. And that's our first clue as to the meaning of this, this event. It, it's a picture of the coming kingdom. It's, it's a foreview. It's a foretaste granted to these three disciples so, so which, by which they leaped over the intervening centuries and were, as it were, present at the coming of Jesus in his second return to earth. This is the hour then of his return. And in chapter 38 of Mark 8, Mark sort of links these two events together clearly. Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So that the transfiguration and the glory that shown there is a picture of the glory of the returning Christ when the world shall see him come once again to earth in his second return. And this then is it's it's a foretaste. It's a foreview. It's a it's a foreshadowing of that very event. And the glory of that second return is the glory of a crowned humanity. This is what Paul means writing to Colossians. He says, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. And he links then the coming of Jesus and the glory of the believer, the glorification of the believer together. So there's this other, another clue in this passage that helps confirm this. And, and that is what Jesus' use throughout this of, of, of the words of the Son of Man. He refers to himself throughout this account like this. And in Matthew 24, where we have this account of his return to earth, he, he invariably uses the phrase the Son of Man, not the Son of God, the Son of Man. This was his favorite title for himself, it seems. And by this, he's indicating that all that happened to him while he was here on earth happened to him as a man. As Paul tells us in Philippians, though he was God, he was God, he was equal with God, but he lay aside the exercise of his godness, of his deity. He didn't lay aside his deity. He couldn't do that. He is fully God. We can't stop being what we are, but he laid aside the manifestation of it. He laid aside the voluntary exercise of godness and humbled himself and became a man. And he lived his entire earthly life as a man, still God, still the God man. But in every manifestation of his earthly existence, he was showing man as God intended humanity to be. He didn't come to show us how God behaves. He came to show us humanity as God intended humanity to be. Now, this is confirmed, I think, by the passage in Hebrews. Hebrews, the second chapter, we have this strange and significant word concerning the glory that God intended humanity to have. In chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 5, the writer of Hebrews says, It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, that is, the coming age. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that, thou, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? 
You did make him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Now, this is a quotation from the eighth Psalm, and it's not a prophetic reference to Jesus, as I think many believe. It's really a reference to what God intended humanity to be. All things were to be in subjection to him. It is it's what we might term as humanity's lost destiny. And it's still the, the always present dream of humanity. We have never, as, 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 a, as people, forgotten this divine injunction that all things were to be subjection to us. That humanity is to rule God's creation. This is why we can never rest and content unless we've climbed to the top of the highest mountain or we've gone to the depth of the the deepest ocean or found some way to maneuver out into space what is behind this strange restless urge of humanity to get to mars what what did we ever lose on mars that we're up there taking pictures of the planet for well nothing we just have to be there that's all we we have to find out what's in god's universe god made us that way But this is the whole story of humanity right here. See, humanity has lost the ability to do what they what to do still um, what we so man is he is still has kept the desire to do. Sorry. So we've lost the ability to do what we have the desire to do. That's the best way to say that. And do I need to spend time in any confirmation of that? I mean, we can invent the most delicately complicated machinery and come up with the most ingenious devices for doing things, but we can't control human nature. And our machines become sort of these Frankensteinian monsters from which we run and hide in terror. You see, we have lost the secret of our humanity. And that's the whole reason for the scripture. That's the reason for the coming of Jesus Christ to earth. So we might regain the lost secret of humanity. So now look at Hebrews 2, 9, as it is, the writer says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. What an understatement that is, right? Wars breaking out all over the globe, rioting in the streets, strife between, between workers and, and, and owners and, and one race versus another, one color of skin against another. All the turmoil and turbulence of our present age is written in that sentence. We do not yet see all things in subjection to him, but we see Jesus. We see Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We see in this account of the transfiguration, when did any person ever see Jesus crowned with glory and honor? Well, one night on a high mountainside outside of Galilee, Peter, James, and John, taken up apart by the by jesus by the lord watching him pray suddenly saw him crowned with glory and honor fulfilling all the intention in god's heart for him fulfilling man's lost destiny humanity's lost destiny and peter understood it exactly this way because when he came to write his letter to the churches many many years later decades later he still had in his mind this unforgettable night on the mountain with the lord 
And in his second letter, he writes these words, for we did not follow, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, of his kingliness. For when he received honor and glory from God by the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. We heard this voice from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, perhaps the picture is beginning to sort of become clearer, right? Jesus Christ is called in the scriptures the second man, the second Adam, the last man. And Adam, number one, lost the secret of humanity for us. And Adam, number two, regained it. Adam, number two, is retracing the steps of fallen Adam, number one. And in this account, we find him going right on through to the end. See, according to the record, Adam one was sidetracked somewhere along the line and and got off onto a a sidetrack that spiraled down and down and down and down into the dark depths of fallen humanity where we all live where we all enter this world and because we are the sons and daughters of adam all of us we can't go any further in discovering our humanity than they did than he did we're limited by that principle which was introduced of independence and into human life that has wrecked humanity and we we can't go further than he did that's why when adam died we die too for as in adam all die The Bible says, scripture says, but here's a second Adam, the second Adam, and he isn't sidetracked like this. As we saw last week, Jesus resisted all the clever, all the strategies of the devil. He was not sidetracked. He went the whole distance. He lived humanity to its full. He fulfilled all that was in the divine intention for, for, for men and women. When God said, let us make humanity in our own image. And he went right on through to the end, even to that place of passing from this present life into the life to come without going through death. That's what's happening here on the Mount of Transfiguration. He passed into glory without death. You see, it was never God's intention that humanity, that man, women should die. We speak of, you know, well, so-and-so, they died a natural death. Well, there's really no such thing, really, as a natural death. Death is the most unnatural thing that's ever come on the human race. It was never God's intention for man. We've fallen into the grip of death simply because we've fallen into the grip of sin and the principle of evil that has seized upon humanity. But Jesus, you see, was not held by death. He didn't have have to die. He lived human life to the complete intention of God, even passing into glory without death. And this is what the apostles were chosen to witness. Now, this is the meaning of that passage in Romans 5, which perhaps a lot of us have wondered about when we have in the latter part of Romans 5 of this remarkable comparison drawn between Adam and Christ. We have what we lost in Adam, we gained back in Jesus. Ah, uh, yes, but but so much more. And again and again in that chapter it says, much more we lost so we lost such and such and such in Adam, but much, much more in Jesus. So see, we go further in Jesus than we could have ever gone in Adam. And the second Adam here is fulfilling the divine intention and goes the whole way. So now we have to deal with question number two. Why did Moses and Elijah appear um, on the mountainside with Jesus? So what a, 
startling thing that must have been. Moses and Elijah, why not Abraham or David or some of the other worthies of the Old Testament? But as the disciples watch, suddenly they see two men with him, and they recognize them as Moses and Elijah. How did they know them? We, we ask ourselves in that, and we can't really answer it, except it's obvious that they did know them. And perhaps this answers a question maybe that some of us ask, at least, you know, everyone that's questioned some of the scripture invariably asks the question, you know, will we, will we know our loved ones when we get to heaven? Well, in this case, apparently the answer is yes. We'll not only know them, but, but everyone else there. So, so that these disciples knew immediately who these men were. I'm, I'm sure they didn't recognize them from the illustrations that were drawn in the scriptures, uh, that, you know, the, in the books, in their kid packets at Sunday school, because all the Old Testament characters, you know, they're always drawn with long beards. And when you put a long beard on, on a guy, he looks like every other guy with a long beard. But, but they knew exactly who he was. And won't that be wonderful? Isn't that wonderful to recognize that, that we'll know these, we'll know each other, we'll, we'll never have to wear name tags in heaven. I think, that's the, I think that's the liner note there. But now Peter does this, a very characteristic thing of Peter. Somebody says that whenever Peter enters in, in Scripture, it's always with a thud. <laughs> he's, he's that bull in the china shop, right? And without realizing, we're told, without knowing what to say, he said, hey, let's make three booths, Lord, one for you, one for Moses, and for Elijah, and let's stay here. And Mark, who wrote his gospel under Peter's tutelage, records this word and that he did not know what to say. Peter must have told him that. There, there are two kinds of speakers, right? There, there are those who have something to say and those who have to say something. And Peter seems to be one of those guys. He, he was a chronic sufferer of perhaps of hoof and mouth disease. And as someone has suggested, the only reason he opened his mouth was to change feet. And in his blundering, having to say something, he blurted this out. Lord, well, let's make three booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And it's recorded about him <clears throat> that he was incredibly afraid. He, he was exceedingly afraid. Who, who would not be afraid under these circumstances? And even as he spoke, the, 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 the account says that a cloud, a bright cloud, suddenly overshadowed them, and this great booming voice came to say, this is my beloved son, Listen to him. Well, can you imagine what effect that had on the disciples? But here in these words lies this clue to the meaning of the appearance of Moses and Elijah on the mountaintop. So God the Father is immediately moving to correct Peter's error, who put Moses and Elijah on the same basis with Jesus. And God the Father immediately points out the error. He says, no, no, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. You see, Moses and Elijah are representative are representatives here. Moses stood for the law, and John opens his gospel with that fact. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And Elijah was always regarded among the Jews as the greatest of the prophets. So that here we have in these two men, Moses and Elijah, the representatives of the great authority to the Jews, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures. But here they're seen in association with Jesus and interested with, with him and talking with him about the departure which he would soon accomplish in Jerusalem. Luke tells us, tells us that they were speaking to him, concerned about these matters, but obviously not on the same level with him. This is what the voice from heaven makes crystal clear. 
This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In other words, this was this little drama. It's another little play enacted for the disciples to teach them a lesson that they badly needed to learn and and one that we we believers badly need to learn and that is that the law and the prophets find their complete fulfillment in the humanity of jesus of nazareth you see it is jesus plus nothing else that is the law and the prophets are swallowed up in him All they have to say to humanity, to mankind, is included and added to in the expression and the life of our Lord Jesus, in the humanity of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, these are verses that that substantiate that. We, we, We may think back how Paul begins the eighth chapter of Romans. What the law could not do, he says, because it was weak in the flesh, God sending his own son and the likeness of sinful flesh for our sin, condemned sin in the flesh in order that the unright that the righteousness which the law demanded might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit that's the law fulfilled in jesus it's by the son the law and the prophets are fulfilled in him christ is the end of the law to everyone that believes paul says and as far as the prophets will discover that they that, that all they predict will be fulfilled by living on that principle. Now, what's the principle? Well, over and over, Jesus manifested it. He declared it. He said again and again that it was his realization that God the Father lived in him and that the Father was working through this yielded humanity to do everything through him that needed to be done. And that, and, and that all was in the mind of God would be fulfilled through him as he expected God to work in his life, living in him. Now, that's the lost secret. The lost secret is that it takes God to be a man. And if every problem and every program in life is confronted with that realization that God is in us to do through us all that needs to be done, we'll discover that we have no longer we don't have any need for half measures to solve our own issues. All that God predicts will be fulfilled by that. Now, one last question. And I think it's essential, and and so we're putting it last on purpose here. Why is it that Peter, James, and John were the disciples chosen to see this and to learn the lesson? Why them? Well, the answer very briefly is this. These are the only three men among the disciples who before this had openly and vocally avoided the idea of the cross. I'll say that again. These are the only three men among the disciples who before this, before this event, had openly and vocally sort of avoided the idea, the principle of the cross. So if we turn back uh, a chapter in Mark to the eighth chapter, you have the account in verse 31 of Jesus beginning to teach the disciples that, that he was the son of man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed after three days and rise again. But Peter took him inside and said to him, Lord, it's not so. Spare yourself, Jesus, this cross business. You don't, you don't have to go through that. After all, you know, a man like you, the son of God, you don't need to go to a cross. Spare yourself, Lord. And Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. I, I know that voice. You, you do not understand the things of God. You only understand the things of man. Of course, man doesn't want a cross, but God does. And, and so Peter was included in this group because he rejected the cross, James and John, if, if we turn a chapter ahead, chapter 10 in this account, 
that's given in verse 35, we read, James and John were the sons of Zebedee. And they came forward to him and they said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And, and he said, well, what do you want? And, and they said to him, well, grant us, you know, let us sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in glory. They both want glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And with utter flippancy and foolish ignorance, they, they said to him, well, yeah, we can do it. And Jesus said to them, you, you shall indeed drink the cup I, that I drink and be baptized um, in, in the baptism that I am baptized with. Yeah, you will be baptized by, like that. So these three men had sort of turned their backs in a sense on the cross. One of them out of, I think, probably foolish sincerity had rejected the principle of the cross, counting, it's not, it, counting it unworthy, right, of, of Jesus and of himself. And then the other two out of sort of ignorant boldness had treated it as though it were nothing and had minimized the cross, kind of regarded it as this incident merely. And, and, so, and so doing, they were rejecting the one principle um, by which this lost secret of humanity that we were talking about, this indwelling God, Jesus in us, is us, the hope of glory, can be appropriated and realized. And so without that, without the cross, we can never put it into practice. And so these three men now see that glory fade, and the voice ceases, and Moses and Elijah are gone, and they see Jesus, just Jesus with them. And without another word, they start down the mountain to this lunatic boy and this despairing father and the growing opposition of the rulers of Israel, which would lead them out to the shadows and Gethsemane's garden. And from there, lead Jesus to the hall of Pilate, the whipping post, the blood, the grief, the tears, the bitter, bitter cross. No doubt he could have stayed up on the mountain and have remained in the glory of the Father, because at that point he had fulfilled all that God intended of human life. He had remained in the glory and passed again into the Father's home. He, he would have fulfilled all God's hope for humanity, all God ever intended a human to be. He was, through the years of up to his life and including that point of the transfiguration, well, then why didn't he? Why did he come back down? And that one verse from Hebrews answers, Hebrews 12 we read that we're to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set and set down at the right hand of the Father in glory, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, came back down the mountain. What was that joy? Was it that he might be with the Father again? No, he, he already had that joy. He could have had that at any time. What was the joy that was set before him? Well, friends, it was that as he looked out on this lost humanity, on this race sunk deep in the agonies and the misery and darkness of self-centered living, Jesus saw the glorious chance, the possibility, actually, that's incorrect, the certainty that if he laid down this perfect human life that he had, he could share it with us that we as well could have it. 
we could enter in with him. And it was, it was the vision of a redeemed humanity that brought him back down the mountain, back to the agony of the garden and the bitterness of the cross. In order that in the resurrection morning, he might freely give his life, this lost secret of humanity, this new kind of living, this new arrangement for living to all who would accept him with the principle of the cross. And that's why Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, let him deny themselves and take up his cross daily and follow me. There's a mistaken identity about Christianity that because Jesus went to the cross, we'll never have to. He went to the cross in order that we might go with him, actually. And on through that cross to the resurrection and beyond. And, and the cross is always the open door to liberty. It's the cross that sets us free from our self-centered lives and breaks this barrier within us that insists that, that we live to please ourselves. It's the cross that, that puts that to death. And by accepting that, by passing through that, by renouncing this right to myself, we experience with him the cross. But when we come to the cross, beyond it always lies resurrection. We can't have Pentecost without Calvary. We can't have the glory of a resurrection morning without the darkness of a crucifixion. But we accept a death to our own plans, to my own program, to my own life, my own ego. And then beyond that lies rest and power and this lost secret of humanity, a restored humanity, which we'll share with him in glory. When Jesus, who is our life, will appear, then we shall be with him in glory. Amen. And God bless.